I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount, and the Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now when shall I provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. And Laman said, Oh, that it were according to your word. So he, Laban, removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it and all the brown ones among the lambs and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now, Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaks, speckled and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the street and all the brown in the flock of Laban, and he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now, Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he had acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock, and he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and I saw in a dream and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled and gray spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, 
Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our Father's house? Are we not considered strangers by Him? For He has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken away from our Father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's, and Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. And then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban, with his brethren, pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, that you have stolen away unknown to me, and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly, and steal away from me, and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy, and songs, and timbrel, and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing." It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, So the first thing, because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live in the presence of our brethren. Identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tent. But he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. Laban searched all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but he did not find the household idols. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? See it here before my brethren. Set it here before my brethren and, and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day the drought consumed me. And the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house twenty years. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, 
Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne? Now, therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahajitha, but Jacob called it, called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. This is the inspired and the inerrant word of God. May he bless its eternal truths to our souls. You may be seated. And the children are dismissed to their classes as well. What a couple stories. We are on our way back out of the chiasm. Last week was the center point, the birth of the 12 tribes, right? These sons that were born to him by Rachel and Leah, Bilha, Zilpah. And now we are covering two of these points this morning, so two stories, D prime and C prime, and you're way back on the second half. Jacob outwits Laban, Jacob departs Haran. The first one, I mean, they're two standalone texts, but the first one is a little bit, probably too short uh, for a sermon, and both of them are probably a little too long for a sermon. So this is 77 verses that we're looking at this morning. Um, quite naturally then, you might understand that uh, our time is short and our text is long, so we'll, we'll summarize rather than go line by line in detail. You can breathe a collective sigh of relief. Um, and then reflect afterward on some of, the, some of the theology. What are some of the takeaways for us this morning? How do we apply two seemingly very random stories like this? 
Uh, certainly they have their historical place, and that is the move of the patriarch back to Canaan. God is keeping his promise and in advancing the blessing back toward this land. Um, but the way that this takes place, man, it's, this, it's kind of this final showdown between the two men, between Jacob and between Laban. So throughout this story, a uh, few things to keep in mind about these two men. Laban's character is consistently exposed throughout this, these two texts. He's shown to be a deeply manipulative, a habitually dishonest, and a dangerously volatile man. Um, he's also a worshiper of multiple gods. And so he, he's not of the faith, you might say. And that comes to light very clearly. Then on the flip side, Jacob, he, he continues in craft, right? He's, he is crafty throughout this whole scenario, but you can see a movement in his language and even in his disposition toward the desire to be righteous, the desire uh, to be toward Yahweh, and uh, to, to live a life that, that seems to be more consistent in that way. So I think there's a measure of, of Jacob's moving toward godly character, uh, he attributes success to Yahweh, and he obeys the voice of God, things that are consistent of the patriarchs. Um, and so we might, we might say that we think Jacob's probably in this spiritual gestation period where he's like not perhaps born yet, but he's being called. He is moving toward, um, toward this moment of humbling that we'll see uh, next week or the following where he has his second divine vision here. Um, so keep in mind the character of the two men. So we'll look, we'll look at the first account first. This is the end of chapter 30, Jacob outwitting Laban. It's a very simple story in the literary, uh, in, in literary pattern anyways. It starts out with the first half is all dialogue, and this is the back and forth between Jacob and Laban. And then the second half is like, okay, they jump into action, and they both do according to what has been said. And so just by way of reviewing here the literary setting, the birth of Joseph has occurred. That's verse 25 of chapter 30. That ties us back into last week. Joseph was the youngest um, of the children mentioned last week. And so once Rachel had born Joseph, now Jacob is ready to go. And the purpose of this account is to recount the building of Jacob's material goods. That's why this account is here. He starts the text with nothing, and he ends the text with everything, materially speaking. So in the past seven years, right, Jacob has experienced great blessing as it concerns his children. He has these 12 children. But otherwise, he has little. He has nothing, even he claims. So in this text, Jacob prospers physically, and he kind of advances from, you know, the pauper to the prince, from the patriarch with nothing, which seems incompatible, to the patriarch with everything physically. So he, he leaves Haran a rich man. And the twist in this text is the surprise that Jacob's prosperity comes with Laban's downfall. He takes Laban's prosperity. You could say God gave him Laban's prosperity, and now it is Jacob. So, the dialogue between these two guys, Jacob begins, right, send me away so that I can go back to my home. It's a minimal request. It's a humble request. He says, just give me my family. Like, if I could leave here with my wives and my children, I'd be happy. And that sets up, you just the, 
the interaction that these two people have had in the t- constantly throughout the text, you know, uh, Jacob's saying, Laban, you always change my wages. You always say something, and then somehow it never happens. Somehow the metric always moves, and I end up with nothing. And so I'm afraid if I go, I'm going I'm to go by myself. Like I'm going to have spent 20 years here for absolutely nothing. I want at least my family. Can I leave with my family? Minimal request. My obligation is fulfilled. And Laban says, no, <laughs> please. Please, please, you've made me rich. I know that you're the reason that I'm living large right now. So name your price to stay, because if you staying means I get to continue eating, drinking, feasting, enjoying the high life, then I really want to do that. So how do I keep you? And he says in that text, uh, depending on translation, he would say he learned by experience in verse 27, or perhaps he learned by divination. Um, so he clues us in probably to Laban's polytheism, which is exposed in not only this account, but then when his daughter takes his household gods. So we don't really know all the details of this particular practice. We certainly know that it was forbidden, that it was cultic, that it was uh, worshiping of, of false gods, and that would be made plain in the law in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 18. But even with that, he says, I learned by divination that your God has made me successful. Your God has blessed me because you're here. So there's that like proximity to the patriarch blessing that we've seen before with Abimelech um, earlier with Abraham. And so he attributes success, which is Laban's true love, to Jacob. So how do I get him to stay? Jacob responds a little bit sassy. You're right. You were, you were a beggar when I came. You had nothing. But you're welcome. You know, all of these years that I've spent here, you're right. God has blessed you through me. Um, you are now ridiculously wealthy. Once again, you're welcome. Uh, and there's theological agreement here. He says, yes, God has blessed you by giving you me. Uh, seems like this sort of hand of Midas situation that everything, as, as it relates to the flocks, anything that Jacob touches turns to gold. And now the problem is the end of verse 30. He says, but now, when do I get anything? Like, when am I going to take care of my house? When am I going to you know, have a 401k. When am I going to have this retirement fund? I, I, I have nothing to my name. And so, and you have sons, right? So you're going to leave your stuff to your sons. So I, I need some way to make money. And every time we agree on something, you take it out from under my feet. So he says, it's, it's not going to work. I, w- I need to work for myself because my house is penniless. Laban, once again, he sort of ignores that. And he says, you know what? Name your price. What shall I give you? So Jacob has this idea. We'll see perhaps its idea, perhaps it was God's. Um, we see that he has a dream later on, or perhaps he's recounting a dream that he had prior to this. But uh, he says, you know what? Give me nothing. Because any, once again, anytime we agree to give me anything, I never get it. So let's, let's have some sort of objective standard. And the standard is weird. Here's where the story takes its sort of like odd cultural turn for us. He says, give me nothing. Stop making me empty promises. Here are the terms instead. I want to begin my own flock. But instead of, you know, tagging or branding or marking them in any way, we're just going to sort them by color, which means let's let God mark out our flocks, Right? God chooses whose or whose. And the way that Jacob sets it up, he says, I'll take the abnormalities. I'll take the less common colors. 
you get the normal ones. You get the, the, 90, the 80, 90%. And I'll just take a little bit over here off to myself. So, all that to say, we don't have to get into all the details of this, but right, normally sheep are light colored. Uh, Jacob's going to take the darker colored sheep. Normally goats were darker colored. Jacob's going to take the lighter or the speckled, the ones with white uh, in them. So, Jacob asked for the anti-typically colored animals, ensuring in Laban's mind, okay, good, he's only going to get a little. It's a minimal payment. That's what we've wanted all along, so he's just going to get a little bit. Um, and, uh, and now Jacob is assured because he says, now there's no way you can accuse me of stealing. There's no, there's no way. Like, if, the, if it has spots, it's mine. If it doesn't, it's yours, type of an idea. So, there's accountability. And Laban says, deal, done. Let's do it. You get to stay with me. I get to stay rich. You get to stay poor. Sounds good. There's the, there's the setup. That's all the dialogue. Part two is the action. And both guys immediately get busy according to this covenant, sort of, right? Jacob said, I'm going to go ahead and sort them out. And Laban says, okay, I'll sort them out today. Don't you worry about that. And uh, so he does so. This is verse 35. You're moved that day, all the male goats and so on. And then he gives them, Laban gives them to his sons, right? My boys will watch over your flock for you. Don't you worry, right? And then he sends them three days away. So in so doing, he's securing that no, like the, the, the gene pool of spots is out here, right? They are gone, separated. This is the complete size of Jacob's flock. And they're so far away that no wanderers are going to intermingle. I have complete oversight. Jacob's not around, this sort of thing. Now, this backfired on Laban because Laban and his sons were gone a lot. They were watching this other flock. They didn't have eyes for what was happening in their own. Okay, so Jacob Cunning, not so much deceptive in this text. Next text, use that word. So he starts, um, <laughs> it gets weird again. Think, think Mandrakes from last week. Uh, <laughs> Jacob's activity here is sort of symbolic. I don't think it's uh, scientific. He's, he's trying to manipulate the breeding process in order to repopulate speckles and to do so with all the strong animals. Right, so the, a large number of all the strong ones are his. Natural strategy, but the way he does it is kind of interesting. It's a, a bit of a mysterious practice, I think, uh, involving recreating the desired colors and patterns by stripping the bark off of various tree branches and then putting those sticks into the animals that he wanted to um, have baby sheep and baby goats, according to his colors, in their drinking water. And then they would, as they were drinking, they would also be mating, and then they would have the kind of animals that Jacob wanted. Okay, so that's, there were two advantages toward him. And we see that it did work according to his, the divine's plan, that Jacob massively prospers in these six years. He has huge flocks everything. And even when, uh, even when Laban now tries to change the wage metric and he says, okay, this kind, okay, this color, okay, this pattern, all of the animals are that pattern and that color. So God is giving over Laban's wealth to Jacob. Um, and, it, and it works. So Jacob's 
massively prospering. He has huge flocks, which gives him something to trade. It's a resource. And so he begins really building this like, small empire on the corner of Laban's property. Servants, donkeys, even the patriarchal prize, right? The camels. And that would hearken back to Abraham's servant coming with camels. So he's siphoning Laban's wealth and poising himself for this rapid exit strategy. That takes us to the end of that chapter and into chapter 31. We'll bring all this to a close at the end. Chapter 31 is a little bit more complex, literarily. Um, the, what this is representing is basically two panels. So this is the first half of the chapter and the second half of the chapter. And you just see similar patterns. So we're not going to walk through all of that on the screen, just sort of follow along as we go through. But you see there's two cycles of the same sorts of things happening in the text. So... 31, two themes are present in this text from the amount of uh, times that words are used. So the father is a theme in this text so around 10 times. And the fact that father's used so many times is cluing us in to the true point of this narrative that it's about inheritance. It's about who gets the stuff, who gets the blessing, where does it go? Does it stay with Laban? Does it go with Jacob? Laban's sons are upset about their inheritance. Laban's daughters are upset about their inheritance. Jacob is wanting to go back to his father, Isaac, to, to sort of complete the circle of his inheritance. And Jacob's sons are implied as inheritors here because he needs stuff to give his sons. It's, it's just like all around, it's weaving throughout the text, um, is this idea of inheritance. And then secondly, and unsurprisingly, the other theme is stealing. <laughs> it's used eight times, um, almost always in an accusatory way about Jacob and Rachel, that they have stolen from him. Now, whether that's true or not is to be played out in the text. We begin with hostility. This is the first few verses of 31. There's hostility between uh, Laban and Jacob, and Laban's sons and Jacob. So when uh, he hears that, La Jacob hears that Laban's sons are talking about him. And they're thinking inheritance. And as we're watching the flock sizes swap, we're watching our inheritance go down the drain. We're going to have nothing left to our name. We need to get rid of Jacob. And so there's hostility with the sons. And then even from the past, apparently, Jacob still says, at least Laban was maybe nice to me or he smiled at me or something. As he had, there was some sort of favor previously, and that is shifting. There's a turn to where he knows Laban's going to come after him. And so for those two reasons... <laughs> Uh, as well as the very helpful reason for Jacob that the divine shows up. God speaks to him and says, time for you to go. In verse 3, the Lord says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So Jacob's materially successful. He's familially successful. There's mounting tension, and God told me to go. Sounds like a perfect time to get out of here, right? So, uh, this, God's voice to Jacob here would parallel his voice to Abraham, calling him out of the country, calling him to go to the land of promise. And so now, as we said before, Jacob is moving toward blessing, moving toward the fulfillment of what God has told him will happen. He has a secret meeting with his wives. Really just to double check that the whole family's on board. Probably not unlike Laban had a secret meeting with these two girls before they came up with a plan to trick Jacob into marrying both of them. 
So he calls his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and he says, okay, here's the deal. There's a few reasons. And he makes his case for leaving. His case for leaving is first and foremost, Laban has had a big change of heart. Uh, and while Laban changed, God is still with me. Uh, Laban deceives me. He changes my wages, but God's not letting him hurt me. And trust me, it's not me. God's taking away your dad's wealth and giving it to me. I can't really help it. Just seems like a good time to go. And then his greatest evidence at the end is, and God showed up to me in a dream. And he recounts this dream. And he says in verse uh, 10, he lifted his eyes and saw in a dream and Here's the question. So in the dream, he sees basically the male rams, the streaked speckles, and they're spotted, mating with the female rams. So he's like, this is what it's going to be. It's go- we're going to have this kind of offspring, the speckled, spotted, streaked offspring. And the question in the text is, where does this dream find its place uh, chronologically? The fact that it came during the mating season and there's uh, the type of animals that Jacob suggested seems to say it's probably early. He's probably recounting something that God came to him earlier with and said, this is what's going to happen. I've seen Laban's oppression. Basically, here's the plan or here like a clue into what he should do as far as his wages so that God could build his home. There's a possibility that it's afterward and God's simply reiterating what has happened. And now he says, it's time. Again, I've observed your, the oppression that's existed here and it's time for you to go. I know, uh, I remember, you know, that, remember that I am the God of Bethel. You made a vow to me and I'm with you, so go. So where it finds its home, I probably tend to favor earlier that, that this really was God's idea but that's not necessitated in the text. Uh, it could even clue us in, you know, there are times that God has people do odd things uh, as symbols. And so there's a possibility, the text doesn't say this, but there's a possibility that God had instructed him with the water situation, that he was just going to show him, this is how symbolically I'm going to do this. And this is your way of trusting me. You do this and this is what will happen. Um, we don't know in the text. So What we do know is that Jacob gives the supreme evidence of time to go as God said time to go. So how how do his wives respond? They agree to separate. And they're upset too, verse 14, right? Rachel and Leah are both on board. What? Both Rachel and Leah agreeing? Both Rachel and Leah on the same team? That must mean Laban's uh, not the best dad, right? He's not doing a good job if he can bring these two enemies um, together. Rachel and Leah agree. They say, you know what? Nothing's left for us. Nothing of our inheritance is left. We, you know, you worked and gave our dad a big dowry, and what did he do with it? He didn't save it for us as he was supposed to. He squandered it. He spent it all. Think like Laban is prodigal sonish and just his, I want everything now, and I want to go enjoy it now, and if Jacob can be my continual income, then keep him around so I can keep living the, the, the high life. And so, uh, they say he spent everything that you gave to him. It's completely consumed. For all these riches, verse 16, which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. So they say, God, or, dad's not been fair. We've been cut off. He squandered all of our stuff. And the transfer of wealth is just because that should be our stuff. So go for it. We're in. We'll, we'll join you in the deception. So, with the approval of his family, Jacob jumps into action. Laban's busy away, shearing the sheep. Um, 
If you're a Utah person, think Roundup or Branding Day, right? It's everybody goes out to help. No one's paying attention to what's going on at the ranch. And so Jacob's out. He cleans everything out, right? Everything that Jacob's hand has touched is gone when Laban gets back. All of it. Like he dust, like he never was even there. Save one thing that was taken that wasn't his to take, right? And that's Rachel. Rachel takes the household idols. Her motive is unstated. Why did she do that? Uh, could be a couple options. One would be to worship because she worshiped these idols. I don't think that's probably the case, but it could be. Her attitude and tone in the text certainly seems a little bit more vindictive towards dad rather than something that she wanted to keep with her. Um, it could be for nostalgia, you know, like that one piece of home. But no, does she really want to remember home? It doesn't seem like she's super happy about everything that's been going on. So I think it's to stick it to her dad. It's a jab for his treatment. You took everything that belonged to me. I'm going to take something that belongs to you. Something that, based on his very dramatic reaction, was quite close to Laban's heart. And so Rachel steals the household idols, and then Jacob steals, the Hebrew is the heart of Laban. That's what he steals. By surprising him, by gut-punching him, by, you know, when, when Laban hears it's all gone, it's like his heart was stolen away from him. His girls are gone. His grandkids are gone. His stuff is all gone. He's been emptied out, cleaned out. So that's what's taken, the household idols and the heart of Laban. That takes us to the second panel, right? So sort of re, re-move through some of the same ideas. Verse 22 Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled, that Jacob had fled. So what did he do? Round up everybody. Get everybody all together. Grab your swords. We're going for Jacob because he's furious. He's frustrated. He wants his family back. And so when Laban finds out, you can almost hear that Esau-like angry rage, like, I've been tricked. I've been deceived. Something was taken from me. And so he gathers the men and pursues his son-in-law. So it doesn't take him too long to catch it. Some of the numbers here are interesting. Um, he probably catches him after about three to 400 miles, which would be very impressive for Jacob to have managed in 10 days. So we're probably talking about general figures, like a short time and a long time, as a three-day and the seven-day periods. Uh, so after a, sh- after a longer time, seven days, he catches up to Jacob. So we're all set up, right? Laban and his horde, however many people there are there, it's his whole, it's his extended family. His, you know, he called the kinfolk, basically. He got everybody together. And who's over on this side? Jacob. His two wives, their two servants, and 12 little kids. Very vulnerable, particularly when, when Laban arrives. So, On the eve of the confrontation, God shows up to Laban, and he basically just gives him a warning. He's like, hmm, tread carefully. Don't overstep your authority. Laban knows, Jacob knows, Jacob is God's. That's mine. Careful how you treat it. That's all he says. And so Laban's, you know, mulling, what can I get away with? I'm not sure how far I can go here. And even it kind of comes out in the text that he's like, man, I would do something if I could do something, but I, I don't think I better risk that. I probably can't because God, your God told me no. 
Um, and so this sets it up. Laban uh, basically starts first. There's these two accusations, one towards the other. Jacob, uh, Laban accuses Jacob, and then there's some drama, and then Jacob fires back and accuses Laban. So what is Laban angry about? Primarily two things. He accuses him of deception, and he accuses him of thievery. So he just says, you've done all of this stuff, right? You stole my daughters like prisoners of war. You put a sword to their throat and made them leave with you. You wouldn't have, because certainly they wouldn't have left willingly, right? They love their dad. I would have sent you away with celebration. I would have thrown you a big party and sent you away with all your stuff. What do you mean I'm not a nice guy, you know? And he's just like, just a bunch of bald-faced lie, bald lies. Uh, he says, you're lucky. You know, God told me last night not to hurt you. And even though I could, I could. Look at all these guys. Stronger than you. I could take all my stuff back. In fact, it's all mine, but not going to take the chance. But why did you steal my household gods? I get you're homesick, buddy. Like, I know you want to go home, but why'd you take my stuff? So those are the two accusations. Jacob addresses both of them, uh, and that's starting verse 31. He answers and says to Laban, well, because I was scared that I wasn't going to get anything. We've talked about that before. You know, you keep moving the metric. Uh, I can never get anything that you promised that you're going to give me. And so I thought I wouldn't even be able to, you know, I wouldn't be able to keep my family either. Uh, secondly, I did not steal your household gods. And if anybody did, kill them. Because I want to be blameless. I want to be righteous. And so he unknowingly sets up his beloved wife, Rachel, for a death sentence. Good thing they didn't find it, or the story would have been different, right? We wouldn't have had Benjamin. <laughs> um, so he doesn't know, though. It does speak a little bit to the, huh, you guys are so close, huh? You love each other so much. You just are just, just lovebirds, and yet you don't even communicate on some of these things. That's interesting that Rachel would do this without having told him. She knows, I think, that Jacob wouldn't have approved. Um, but he says, yes, deceiver your fault. No, not a thief. Go ahead, look. Look for everything. And so this is really, this is dramatic, sort of amusing. Like Laban trashes the camp. He looks through everything, you know, and, and it builds because it starts with Jacob's tent, right? Because he has accused Jacob and there's nothing in there. He ruins the whole tent, moves over to Leah's tent, first wife, okay? You would think he'd go to Rachel next. He doesn't because that's the drama. Then he goes to the two sister, uh, their two maids, uh, tents, and he didn't find them there. And then he went out of Leah's tent, and now he enters Rachel's tent, and they haven't told us yet where Rachel stashed these. So you think you might find them in her tent, but he doesn't. He turns out the whole thing. Now Rachel had taken them and put them in the camel saddle, sat on them. Great strategy, right? And so she's here sitting on the camel, sitting on the household gods, and she says, I'm sorry, Dad. I can't get up. I would come and give you a hug, as is custom, but, she says, the way of women is, upon, is with me. I'm on my period, Dad. I'm sorry. Can't move. True or not, we don't know. I'll say it now instead of later. This is, this is actually quite, um, it's quite a slam against the gods of Canaan, isn't it? As we learn later in Leviticus, there, there are ceremonial clean, clean things and ceremonial unclean things. In Leviticus 15, there's a guide for bodily fluids for both men and for women. And the guideline is 
unclean during this time. And so without, you know, going into detail, basically Rachel's considered ceremonial, ceremonially unclean right now. And even specifically stated in Leviticus, anything she sits on is as well. So the idea here, like this is, this is a mockery of the Canaanite gods is what this is. And if you, you know, first off, if you arrive somewhere and you have to say, did you steal my gods? You might want to get new gods, right? If your gods can just get stolen, probably not the best thing. But then there's just this like supreme uncleanness about them. Like she's on her period and sitting on them. That's what Moses and God and Rachel thinks of the gods of the Canaanites. So it's particularly condemning. Laban's divinities are, are not worth very much. So then Jacob, man, he is furious after all this, right? Laban showed up with all his guys, with all his swords. He knows he's angry. He wants to do violence. I would if I could, but I can't. You thrashed all my stuff. And so you can feel like 20 years I've been waiting for this moment. And he just lashes out at Laban. 20 years of pent-up frustration and anger. What have I done wrong? You chase me like an enemy. You throw around all my stuff. Bring out anything that belongs to you. And let's have a court case. I'm blameless. Technically not true because of Rachel. But aside from this, true. I've done nothing but bless you as a caretaker of your flock. As you know, God's blessed you through me. No miscarriages of the flock, no skimming off of the top. Even when an animal was eaten, I didn't bring it to you. I just took it out of my own wages. I've been hot. I've been cold. I've been sleepless. I have worked tirelessly for you for 20 years, and you've done nothing but change the metric, move the goalposts constantly, cheating me, blessing you, I'm done. And he says, it's true. Unless God had intervened, you would have taken everything from me. I mean, Laban just sort of admitted that, right? He said, if God wasn't, hadn't told me, I would, I'd be hurting you right now. Laban is a beautiful moment of silence, right? Takes him a second. He's on his heels. Doesn't know what to do. He just gives the dumbest reply. I think he's, he stops talking for a minute, and then he, he says, you know what? Verse 43, this is all my stuff. These are my daughters, and these are my grandkids, and this is my flock. Everything that you see is mine. Just had to say that before I say, okay, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. But what can I do this day? Right? Clearly, you're, you win. You win. I can't prove anything. The girls don't want to come back with me. You win. So, let's have a peace treaty. And so, there's a covenant. I don't know if he's nervous about Jacob's retaliation based on a false accusation, well, a true accusation, but unable to be proved, or not. Or if he's just trying to, trying to you know, be the bigger man, to be like, you know what? I'll do something nice for you. Let's have a peace treaty. And so, this is uh, very cultural, very traditional. Um, they set up these two uh, stones. Well, one of them is a single stone. One of them is a pile of stones. Not very many commentators made much of that. One did mention, 
that Jacob's is the single one and Laban's is the multiple one as representations of their divinities. Not sure if there's something symbolic to that or not. But the stones function in two ways as related to the covenant. First is that they're, um, they're symbolic witnesses, right? They're like people watching the covenant. And so anytime somebody breaches the covenant, you go back and say, here's a witness. Like this, they would testify. Let the rocks testify um, to our covenant. Secondarily, they're, uh, it comes out that they are boundary markers. So it's basically a line in the sand. You know, he's saying, okay, you don't cross that line. I won't cross it. We're good. You can do whatever you want on your side. But if you come over to my side, it better be for peace. And so they agree that way. They both name it, uh, name the place. Laban names it with an Aramaic name. Uh, Jacob names it with a Hebrew name, and they both mean this rock of witness. So they're both naming it the same thing, but in their respective tongues. And there's something significant to that because there's this finality of division of the sons of Terah. So no longer like, does Abraham have anything to do with Laban. Does Isaac have anything to do with Laban? Does Jacob have anything to do with Laban? While relatives, the covenant family is clearly cut. The, in bloodline, in, in boundary line, it's, it's saying even in language, right? This is the Hebrew side, this is the Aramaic side. And so all of that is being established. Interestingly, here and one time earlier in the text, Jacob uses uh, the words, the fear of Isaac to reference God. Fear is a noun, um, substituting for the God of. So the fear of Isaac, and it's the only time in Scripture that that's done that way. Uh, there's probably something more substantive to it than I have to say right now, but that he references this ties in this idea of the fear of God being present and that it has multiple implications for those who are saved, unsaved to be the categories, righteous, wicked, those who are with Yahweh, those who are without Yahweh, because it's a term of comfort for Isaac sorry, for Jacob. But particularly based on the dream and based on his term, what was it for Laban? Not that, not comforting. He, it's, I think he's using it threateningly too. Like, yeah, you better not cross this line. <laughs> you cross into the fear of Isaac territory. Um, and so he uses this. It is, it's a beautiful statement of who God is, the fear of Isaac. And then also note maybe that it's still not personalized. It's not the fear of Jacob. It's the fear of Isaac. So it's, there seems to be this move toward true belief. Okay? Then uh, they have a meal, customary, um, have a sacrifice, stay all night. And then Jacob arises, uh, Laban arises, kisses his sons and daughters, blesses them, goes home. <laughs> we have an entire chapter or two, the last two chapters of Genesis, dedicated to the blessings of Jacob. What do we have the blessings of Laban? That. He blessed his kids and left. It was a, a relatively meaningless blessing compared to the blessing of the patriarch. So, so these are the two stories. What do we do with that? <laughs> like, how do, we, how do we, and what are we intended to walk away with as New Testament saints, as people distant from many of these customs uh, certainly, as we've reiterated and will continue to, the idea that God is keeping his promises is very present in the text. That's premier. On the moral side of things, you can't help but see the character of Laban and who he is. So on the moral side of things, Proverbs is going to say, beware Laban. 
don't listen to Laban. There are people in our lives, and particularly to young people, there are people that are Laban-ish everywhere. People who have a high view and high value of material success and who are going to teach you just the way to get there. In fact, they'll share a purse with you. They'll give you a wage. And they invite you in to their story, to their narrative. And simultaneously, many of these people have a low view of morality. And the danger when you have a high view of value and a, low, a high view of stuff and a low view of morality is that you're willing to exchange the two. I'll give my morality for success. That danger is very strongly warned about from father to son in the book of Proverbs, and Laban is a really good example of that, of the uncle who wants to teach you the ways of life, who wants to show you, and, and it's wrong. He's wrong. So that, that would be a moral application, is to beware Laban. From the gospel perspective, consider the two people in the story and their connection to the divinities. So think of Laban. This is all of us previously, and some perhaps presently. Laban lived for Laban. He lived for himself. He sought personal gain as a priority. He spent resources that weren't his. He wasted uh, the dowry of both of his daughters on himself. He was concerned first for himself. He was a habitual liar. He constantly jumped through hoops. He justified his actions. He stepped back uh, on promises all the time. He was untrustworthy, and his word was not very meaningful. He was also dangerous and violent. He chased down his hardworking, loyal son-in-law with violence in his heart. And he says, you stole my gods. He worshipped in a way that was not ultimately meaningful. The powerlessness of idols is on display in the text. And this was all of us. And then we consider Jacob. And what makes Jacob unique? What is making him unique and different? And that is the covenant of God toward him. That's what makes him unique. Is, and, you, and you actually will see what's happened in this specific narrative as a previous and a future pattern. So Jacob's being delivered from oppression while taking riches from the oppressor and being moved toward blessing. That's what's happened in this account. Think back to Abraham. Abraham was called out of Ur and then called out of Egypt. And what did he take with him from Egypt? He took riches with him toward the land of blessing. Even though, as both of them, I mean, what's Jacob turning? He's turning away from Laban toward what? Esau. <laughs> he's turning toward a, a, perhaps a more frightening enemy even than Laban himself. And that happened with Abraham too. Uh, that he, was, he wasn't being delivered completely, fully, finally in that moment. He was del being delivered from something toward even other oppression. <laughs> but then you think in the future, for them, not for us, Israel being delivered from Egypt. And when they're delivered from Egypt, what do they take? Well, they take great riches with them. The oppressor makes them rich, and then they move where? Toward the land of blessing. And that is sort of the story of deliverance. That's how it occurs. That even we, as we saw in Colossians, were moved from a kingdom of darkness 
from an oppressor, someone who possessed us. And we move from the dark kingdom toward the land of blessing. And even though danger lies ahead, we have confidence because God says, I will be with you. I am with you. And so this pattern of salvation is present, and even for many of us has been experienced, that we've felt that story in our own lives. And we're, like I said, Jacob likely is not regenerated yet. But even then, many of us could look back on our interaction with the gospel. And it's the same story for each person, but uniquely experienced, perhaps. And in those unique experiences, we can look back and say, yeah, God was moving. God was drawing. Look, his deliverance. Look, his blessing. Look, him moving me away from that toward that. All to accomplish what? Regeneration. All to move me, to call me toward repentance and faith. And so God's presence and guidance in this text and in the gospel narrative is extraordinarily strong. Who was it that provided prosperity for Jacob? And Rachel and Leah, was it the mandrakes? Was it the striped uh, twigs? No, it wasn't those things. It was God. He told Jacob where to go. He shows up in a dream and tells him, go, it's time. He shows up to Laban, to the enemy, and he says, stop in your tracks. Like God is orchestrating, guiding, moving all of these pieces. And importantly, he's doing them outside of Canaan's border. So who is our God? Is our God a local deity? Is our God one who exists in a particular region for different historical or cultural reasons? No. Our God's the maker and sustainer of it all. He goes where he wants. He does what he wants. And he's absolutely doing that in this text. And as a result, any other little g God is ridiculed, is mocked, has no place standing next to God. They can't. They fall in front of him. And so this reflection of gratitude, of a movement in our own hearts from Laban to Jacob to Israel, which we'll see soon, that God has chosen and he is moving, he is guiding in each of these moments. And if God is with us, as he promised Jacob, and we are the true, we are the spiritual sons of Israel, if God is with us, then all is well. All of our boast is in Jesus. Let's pray.